So today, Jewel Showwater is going to be bringing us the message. Um, Jewel is one of the founding members of our church, her and her husband, Richard. And uh, so we're just eager to hear what she has to share with us today. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for everyone that's come together. And we thank you for the word that you've put on Jewel's heart. Lord, help her to express and to relay the words that you have for us and give us the ears to hear. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Okay. All right. Thanks a lot. And welcome. Some of you are old timers. Some of you are new. Some of you I know. Some of you I don't. Some of you I'm just learning to know. So it's very special to have this opportunity to share with you this morning. We've been talking a lot about grace, if you've been here. So we've heard about the grace that saves. We've heard about the grace that gives you courage to endure in tough times. Last week, we heard about being adopted into God's family by grace. And so this morning, we're going to be talking about grace for service. So I hope that doesn't scare anyone away. But the scripture we start with is 1 Peter 4, 7 to 11, and I didn't choose this. Joey assigned this to me. He said, Jewel, we want you to talk on this. So notice how this scripture starts, and it's not a comic joke. It says, the end of all things is near. We just talked about that in our prayer time this morning, and Lloyd said, that sounds like, you know, some preacher, uh, some street preacher holding up a sign. The end of all things is near. Repent. Doomsday. But this was actually Peter. The Apostle Peter writing more than 2,000 years ago and saying, the end of all things is near. So what should we be doing? How should we be acting if the end of all things is indeed near and it's at least 2,000 years nearer than it was when Peter wrote these words? He says, therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled. Clear-minded. Who feels clear-minded this morning? clear-minded and self-controlled. So, why? So you can pray. Pray. And above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. I love that verse. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each should use whatever gifts they have received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace. There's our grace word. God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he or she should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he or she should do it with the strength that God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. What a passage from Peter, the apostle, speaking to us today, even as he was, to those other exiles and strangers to which he wrote, scattered throughout Asia Minor at the time of the book of Peter was written. 
Now, in this series, we've often turned to Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. That's been one of our keystone scriptures. You know, for by grace are you saved through faith. We know that by memory, many of us. And it's a great truth that indeed lies at the heart of the Protestant Reformation, where there was this renewal. Christianity had been going along 1,500 years. There was a lot of tradition. And then this insight just burst on the scene. You know, by grace you're saved. It doesn't take a lot of good works. It doesn't take a lot of penance. It doesn't take a lot of praying to get your soul out of purgatory. All these truths started coming through at the time of the Protestant Reformation. But sometimes I think we forget verse 10. And that's what I really want to focus on this morning. It's further on. And in fact, I remember when this church was being founded and we were working with a lot of new Christians people coming to Christ out of drug addiction, alcoholism, and often people were wanting healing. They were wanting to know whether they were saved, whether they were going to go to heaven. And so people were eager to pray. We were praying with a lot of people. And it seemed to me that at first people were saying, okay, yeah, I want to be a Christian. What's in it for me? What's in it for me? There was that me-centeredness as often is there within us as well as new Christians but then tests would come. Tests would come. My prayers aren't answered in the way I thought they should be. I thought God was going to provide that need. My marriage is in trouble. My kids are rebellious. All of these difficult things that come up in our lives. I'm, 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 I'm depressed. I'm fearful. I'm anxious. God isn't answering my prayer. Verse 10 says, For we are God's handiwork. We are God's workmanship. We are God's masterpiece created in Christ Jesus for good works. Good works don't save us, but we're created for good works. God has a purpose for each of our lives, something he wants us to do. Lots of things that only we can do, uniquely we can do. We each have a sphere of influence, people whose lives we touch that no one else is touching in quite the same way. And these are things, that verse says, we are God's workmanship, handiwork, created in Christ Jesus <clears throat> for good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. That verse has often been comforting to me. As you know my life, and you'll hear a little bit about it this morning, I've lived in a lot of different places, a lot of different states, a lot of different countries, and when there would be a time of leaving an old home, an old job, old friends, there was always insecurity. Oh dear, what am I going to do in that new situation? Who are going to be my friends? What's going to be my job? How are my children going to adjust to the schools? All these kinds of things. And it was so comforting to read this scripture. God has prepared in advance for me good works, good friends, good neighborhoods, good schools, things he wants me to be involved in. And that's always been just such a comfort for me. So I really want to focus on that this morning. What are the good works that God has prepared in advance for you, for me, for each of us? Because that's what it is. But I also want to tell you about a recent trip that I took to Indonesia. I was talking to somebody and said, should I tell about my time in Indonesia? You know, can anybody in Mechanicsburg relate to that? And they said, yes, we really need to have our minds expanded. <laughs> so, okay, here goes. 
But anyway, this trip to Indonesia, to give you a little bit of background, was one of those good works which I see God had prepared for me to do, but which I really did not want to do. When I first got the invitation, I got an email about it. I saw the title. I didn't even open the email for a couple days because I know what they're going to ask me to do, and I don't want to do it. Uh, do any of you have, like, knee-jerk reactions to things? You know, when you first hear something, you just knee-jerk. No, I'm not going to do that. Or maybe somebody makes a comment, and your knee-jerk response is, but if you stop... <laughs> And you say, okay, God, what do you want me to say? Okay, God, what do you want me to do? It's much more likely it'll be of the spirit than of the flesh. So my knee jerk was, I'm not going to go. I don't want to travel internationally again without my husband. Uh, the tickets are going to be too expensive. And besides, my niece is getting married that same weekend that you want me to come. So I can't go. I'm on a limited income. Um, it was just amazing. As I opened the email, I saw what they wanted me to do, and I thought, okay, God, I will open myself just a little bit if you really want me to do this. If this is a good work you've prepared ahead of time for me to do, I'm willing to do it. And it was amazing how things fell in place. My daughter was able to travel with me. They told me that the conference did begin earlier but the part they wanted me for was still two days after my niece's wedding, so I could still make it. And furthermore, they said, we want to pay for your ticket and all your expenses. So I said, okay, God, here's Indonesia. You'll see a map in case some of you don't know where it is, and several of you asked me where indeed it is. So there's Indonesia. We flew into Medan, which is the top, the, the western northern island. You see the city of Medan. That's where we flew into after two days of travel. I had been invited to go because they were celebrating this organization called the International Missions Association, which my husband had helped to found 25 years earlier. They were celebrating 25 years, and they wanted me to come and give several devotionals at this conference they were having. Now, the International Missions Association was started as a way to get missionaries and mission leaders in the global north, North America, Europe, to collaborate with mission leaders from the global south, from the emerging large churches in Africa, Asia, Latin America. So this was, there was a synergy and a collaboration between mission leaders. How can we cooperate together? And indeed, this area of Indonesian, Indonesia was sending missionaries into Tibet. At the same time, our church here was sending missionaries to Tibet. So that kind of collaboration was fostered through this International Missions Association. And by the way, when I was there, they said, oh, well, take our greetings to your church. So greetings from the church in Indonesia. And I told them, even though I hadn't asked you ahead of time, I said, our church sends their greetings to you too. <laughs> so it was just an amazing experience to be there with mission leaders from Thailand, from India, from the Philippines, from Honduras, from Mexico, Tanzania, Kenya. All, you see, Indonesia is a series of islands, and there's a lot of different cultures and tribal groups and languages. So there were people from other parts of Indonesia that came into Maidan, and it was their first time, too, there. So anyway, uh, Ethiopia, 
in North America. So I brought back a little video that I want to show you, just a snippet of some of the joyful, colorful worship that we enjoyed. And uh, we're going to play a video here of this, this choir that sang for us in three different languages, at least if we can get the video to work. I think we can, Michelle. Is that going to be? Okay. This is English. We're marching in the light of God. Now they're singing in an African language. Indonesian language. So worship team here, I think you need to step it up a little bit. Maybe the costumes seem a little boring or something. Anyway, <laughs> so it was fascinating. When you go to a new place like this, you think, how did the gospel first come to this region of Indonesia? Because as we walked around and drove around, I saw lots of churches there. And I was like, okay, guys. Uh, I was talking to a young woman. I said, so how did the gospel come to this part of Indonesia? And she looked at me, and she giggled even a little bit. And she said, well, she said, the first missionaries came from America, but we ate them. And I was like, what? <laughs> and she said, yes, we were cannibals. She said, the Batak people of northwestern Indonesia, she said, we were cannibals. And she said, the first, she didn't tell me this. I actually had to go look on the Internet because she didn't remember the names of them. <laughs> But I said, I want to find out this story. And I found out that in uh, 1834, okay, when was the Amer America founded? 1776, okay. 1834, America is sending missionaries to Indonesia. There were two families. The men's names were Samuel Munson and Henry Lyman. They went in, they worked, they were making friendships, learning the language. But then they came to a hostile tribe. They were killed and cannibalized by the Batak peoples. But you know what they said before they went into that area? This was a good work that they sensed God was calling them to do. When someone asked them, why would you go? Why would you try to contact people like that that want to kill you and eat you? Why would you do something stupid like that? And they said, we died before we came. We died 
before we came. Died to self. Died to our own works. And opened ourselves to the good works that God wanted us to do. Well, it was about, it was more than 20 years, I think it was about 30 years later, when another missionary came, this time from Germany. His name was Nomensen. He went, many of the same methods, learned the language, lived among the people, had friends from the tribe, but eventually, as he kept teaching for about 20 years and moving among the people, by 1880, this Nomensen, and everybody in that part of Indonesia knows his name. He's, they say, oh, Nomensen, Nomensen. They all know that he's the one who brought the gospel to their region. Whole tribes, whole villages turned to Christ. And today, that church that, of that just particular denomination numbers four million, and it's the largest denomination in Indonesia. So, and Nomensen, one of his quotes was, he said, as he went into this area, he said, I begin a battle here, which the Lord Jesus has already won long ago. Think of that. I'm beginning a battle here, but the Lord Jesus already won that battle. So as we go <laughs> into these good works that we feel God is calling us to do, we know that we're on the winning side. <laughs> we know the battle has already been won. Yes, we're going to lose some of the battles. Some people are going to get killed and eaten. <laughs> that sounds rather drastic to us <laughs> today, but that was happening less than 200 years ago. But these people went and were willing to lay their lives down and do things. And we probably never heard their names before, but that's what God called them to do, and they were faithful, and we're seeing the results of that today in this vibrant church in Indonesia. Verse 8 says, above all, love each other deeply, because love covers a multitude of sins. Love covers a multitude of sins. Now, I don't think this scripture is talking about things like abuse and covering up someone's addiction or something like that, but it means learning how to love one another through all kinds of mistakes like lateness and forgiveness and burping and singing off the wrong key and unkind remarks and grudges and anger and hard feelings and all kinds of these things. Love covers all those kinds of things. And whenever I read this scripture, I always think of an experience I had here in Mechanicsburg when our family lived here on Walnut Street. And it was this same time of year, and all the wagons were coming in, bringing the grain and the soybeans from, uh, from the fields around here, taking down to the grain elevator. And our children were attending the, the, the school here in Mechanicsburg. And um, they would walk to school and back. And uh, one day, I was sitting in the, in the house, and I was trying to have some quiet time because we were really busy with the church and with the kids and everything. And I was just feeling all these resentments were building up within me against my husband. I was just like, he doesn't have time for me. There's just too many things going on. And there's that door that's falling off its hinges and the faucet that's leaking. And, you know, there's just so many things. And I started, as I was having my quiet time that morning, I started making this list of all the things that I just really needed to talk to my husband about and just that, that he needed to change if things needed to change. So I had just finished this, um, this 
quiet time and making my list when all of a sudden I heard this scream outside. And I went, and there was my little five-year-old running home from kindergarten with his hand over his nose. And he says, oh, mommy, uh, mommy, I think I'm going to die. I think I'm going to die. I said, well, what happened? And he said, well, Josh and I, when we were walking back from kindergarten, there was this corn beside the road. And he said, we stuck kernels up our nose, and then we'd blow them out and see who could shoot them the furthest, you know, boys. <laughs> and, and he was like, and now he said, I stuck it up here, and it won't come out. And I was like, oh, okay, well, I'm sure I can get it out. And so I go rummage in the, the drawer, the utensil drawer, and I find this nut pick, you know, and I'm trying to get it out, and he's just screaming all the louder, no, mommy, that doesn't work. I'm trying to squirt up water from the faucet, you know, mommy, it doesn't work, am I going to die? <clears throat> oh, vacuum cleaner, I'll get the vacuum cleaner. <clears throat> Maybe that'll work, but we had such a bad vacuum cleaner, it had almost no suction. And it just didn't work at all. And I was like, I'm not going to take him to the doctor for this. We're on such a limited income. And I, I'm just not. I'm not. You know, but he kept crying. And it was just getting worse. And so finally I got in the car. And I, I just, uh, I, I just, you know, okay, we'll go to the doctor. We just have to do it. And so I was sitting there in the doctor's office, you know, emergency. But there was a long wait. And I got him playing with something. And I was, what am I going to do while I wait? And so I pulled my Bible out, and I opened it up. Well, I guess I could read my Bible while I'm sitting here. And it fell open where I had stuck my list from that morning. And I was like, okay, I'll just start reading here. And this is what I read. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. It keeps no record of wrongs. I was so convicted there in the doctor's office. I just took my list out and I just crumpled it up and I threw it in the trash. I said, God, I repent. I repent from that list of all those wrongs that I had against my husband. I don't remember a single thing that was on that list to this day. It was so minimal. Then the doctor called and he said, okay, I can look at you now. So with one flick of his silver instrument, that corn came out. I picked it up. It's the most expensive kernel of corn in the world. <laughs> but it taught me a priceless lesson. Love does indeed cover a multitude of sins. So let's repent. Let's repent of the grudges, the little petty grievances that we have against one another because only then can we press in to what it is that God has for us to do. The next verse in our passage is offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Without grumbling. Now Benjamin Franklin, one of the founders of our country said, fish and visitors smell in three days. But that was Benjamin Franklin. That wasn't the Bible. The Bible says, offer hospitality ungrudgingly. And he doesn't say just if you like the people or if they smell good or if they're your friends. No. He just says, offer it ungrudgingly. Now, I came across this letter, a letter to Diogenetus. I don't know if you've ever heard this. It's one of the early descriptions of Christians that we have 
given by a Roman, most likely an official in the Roman Empire, and he's giving a description of this new sect, this new cult that was arising. And people didn't know what they were. And so here this, this letter to Diogenetus says, Christians are not distinguished from other men by country, language, or by the customs which they observe. They do not inhabit cities of their own, use a particular way of speaking, or lead a life marked out by any curiosity. They inhabit both Greek and barbarian cities. They go all over the empire. But it is while following the customs, and it is while following the customs of the natives in clothing and food and the rest of ordinary life that they display to us their wonderful and admittedly striking way of life. And what was the striking way of life? What were the people, the pagan peoples of the Roman Empire beginning to observe about this growing but very tiny minority of people called Christians in their midst. They live in their own countries, but they do so as those who are just passing through. As citizens, they participate in everything with others, yet they endure everything as if they were foreigners. Every foreign land is like their homeland, and every land of their birth is like the land of strangers. They marry like everyone else and have children, but they do not destroy their offspring. There we see among the early Christians this concern for life, a recognition that everyone is created in the image of God. They do not destroy their offspring. And in fact, they were known for going to the garbage dumps where people abandoned their babies. If they wanted a boy and they got a girl, we'll just leave her out there by the garbage dump. But the Christians were known for going around and picking up these little abandoned babies and raising them as their own. They share a common table. There we have this theme of hospitality. They were always known for their hospitality, inviting anyone in to share a common table, but not a common bed. There we see the sanctity of marriage, the care for one's own family, one's own spouse. They were true to one another. They love all men and are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and restored to life. They are poor, yet make many rich. Anyway, just a little description of these people that were emerging at the time when Peter wrote this epistle. Uh, Peter calls them strangers scattered throughout Asia Minor. Uh, they were not popular. They were not popular people. But by showing hospitality, they won their way into people's hearts. And people especially that felt on the fringes of society, felt neglected, felt abandoned, they were welcomed into Christians' homes. And that's how the church grew. It grew mostly from the lower classes of people at first, if we can believe that, because we live in a, in a country now where we've said, well, America's a Christian country. Yes, we have our problems with it, but we don't know what it's like to be a small, persecuted minority like the early Christians were. Now, I love my citizenship here in the U.S. It has lots of advantages. I qualify for Medicare, Social Security. My grandchildren can attend free public schools, free public library. When I traveled to Indonesia for this missions conference, I was able to get a visa on arrival where my Honduran brothers who were there had to travel all the way from Honduras to Panama just to get a visa because there's no embassy in their own country. So they had to travel to Panama to get a visa. 
and an Ethiopian friend who lives in this country went to great lengths to get a visa, and then she was telling it to me, and I said, oh, I can just get a visa on arrival. She said, yes, you have the golden passport. That's what other people in the world call citizens of the United States, people with the golden passport. Okay, so while we're grateful to be Americans and we're grateful for our country, the Bible tells us in Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. We are citizens with all those people <laughs> that I was telling you about that I met in Indonesia. We're brothers and sisters of them. How is that citizen? How do we understand that citizenship? Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our king. And it's he that gives us the jobs to do, these acts of service. He's the one who pours out the grace on us so that we can indeed serve in ways that please him. Because when we're adopted into his family, like Mark was explaining to us last Sunday, we don't just come there to, to sit. <laughs> no, when we're part of a family, we participate in the work that that family does, everything to make the family flourish. And that's what God calls us to do. So I have a few points here about um, how we can serve more effectively. We can show hospitality to all because we know where our primary citizenship lies. We can even serve our enemies because we know that our citizenship is in heaven. So we can talk to someone who's very different from us. We can show hospitality to them because we know our primary citizenship is in heaven and we don't need to over-identify with the country where we're living. We've been created for good works that God has gifted us for, um, I don't know what you thought. Some of you here remember 9-11 and when the, the Twin Towers fell. And then as we learned more about the terrorists who had done this, and they had lived among us for years before they did that. One of the first thoughts I had after that was, I wonder if anybody, I wonder if any Americans that they knew ever invited them over for coffee or just reached out to them and befriended them, it would have been a lot harder to fly that plane into the trade tower if you had friends, if you had really friends. And I've read some, as we've all been reading about the, the situation in Israel and Gaza. I've been reading about Palestinians and Jews, Christians on both sides of the line who are getting together and talking. How can we be people of peace in this situation? What can we do nonviolently to diffuse the situation that has become so devastating in that region? Can we do that? Can we show hospitality to the other, someone who is so different from us? I think that's what Peter is calling us to as believers, knowing our citizenship is in heaven. We can extend hospitality to anyone. And we learn our gifts by showing up in person and trying stuff. I don't think anyone ever learned how to serve in the church by just staying home and watching it on TV. Okay? That's one of my pet peeves. <laughs> we need to come. We need to be part of a body. We need, 
And that's how we learn to serve. That's how we learn to sing and lead worship. That's how we learn to make Christmas boxes. That's how we learn somebody had a baby. I can take a casserole over. Somebody had an accident. Maybe I can help bake cookies for them. That's how we learn to serve, by showing up and trying things. No one ever learned to skateboard just by watching YouTube videos. No, you have to get out and risk skinning your knee and breaking your ankle or ride a bike or swim or ride a horse without falling off. You can't. We just have to get in and we have to try things and we have to do them. And so maybe if you're sitting back and you're saying, well, I could never sing or I could never lead worship or I could never whatever. You can, or how do you know? Maybe you should try. Anyway, what are those good works? I just want to challenge you this morning. What are those good works that you can show up and do instead of your knee jerk? Oh, I couldn't do that. That's not my gift. Well. When Peter said, show hospitality, he didn't say, well, just if it's your gift. If it's your gift. No. He said, do it. Each should use whatever gifts they have received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do it as speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides. Interesting that the gifts seem to fall into speaking and doing categories. Uh, Colossians 3.17 also says, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, some of you knew my late husband, Richard. He was very gifted in words, preaching, writing, teaching. He was very gifted in listening to people, compassionately loving people. But it was very hard for him to do anything around the house. He just didn't notice the dripping faucet. He didn't notice the door falling off its hinges. Uh, he didn't notice those kinds of things. And so those were some of the things on my list, I'm sure. Uh, but I learned, I mustn't just nag him. Those were his gifts. Let him flow. Let him be good in the things he was good at. And I could always call a repairman or a friend, someone to come over and fix my dripping faucet. Uh, I know many people would rather fix my car than get up here and speak. <laughs> we all have, we're made in different ways, and God wants us to flow in that, and they're all gifts to the body. A church I know, Maple City Chapel in Goshen, Indiana, a sister church of our church here, uh, started a ministry. There was one of their elders there, loved he was a good mechanic, and he loved to repair cars. And so every Saturday, the church has started the ministry where they, people can bring their cars there to get them repaired. And it's just blessed so many people in the community as well as, as church members who've needed it. And I just I love that kind of thing. When churches are helping, how can we help our community in practical ways as well? Because God gives gifts to us in word and in deed. Sometimes he wants us to say a word. Sometimes he wants us to just shut up and fix someone's car. Um, we can also, let's see, I think you could put up the picture of our family when we were in Kenya. Um, whenever I think of, um, whenever I think of serving, I'm thinking of the, one of the most difficult times of service in our lives was when we spent nine months in Kenya. It was right after the church here was founded and our family moved to Kenya, and this was something that my husband really wanted to do. I was dragging my feet a little bit more, but he really wanted to go, and um, there was a lot of speaking, a lot of speaking ministry going on. Youth conventions, there was a youth renewal happening, a lot of young people coming to Christ in, in Kenya during that time, and um, so um, we went. 
but it was very difficult for me because I had these three young children. You can see there, I was trying to homeschool them, although our books hadn't come. Uh, we never knew where we were going to sleep each night or what foods we were going to be eating each day. It was before electronics, so there were no iPads to play on or anything like that. So um, one day we went to the city of Naivasha and uh, we, were we were taken to the home of the school teacher where we were gonna be staying, and we were given, our family of five was given three single, very narrow, single beds for the night. And I was like, okay, the kids come in, where are we gonna sleep? And I said, oh, well, okay, um, Daddy and I will have the one, the one bed, and uh, Rhoda, the girl, she'll get the other bed, and you two boys are gonna have to share this other bed. Well, the oldest son, Chad, declared, I will not sleep with Matt. And I said, oh yeah, it's either that or the cement floor. So I put them one at each end of the bed. I drew a diagonal line down. Keep your feet on this side. You keep your feet on that side. And we all went to bed. Okay. Middle of the night, early morning, I hear this terrible scream. And Chad says, I'm all wet. And here... Little Matthew, who had not wet his bed since he was three years old, had wet his bed all over himself and his older brother. Okay, well, the next morning, God was really moving in that convention, and everyone else went off. People were getting saved, I mean, to tell you, filled with the Holy Spirit. They all went off to the convention, and there I was with the three children and these very stinking sheets. No washer either. True water, this big metal tub, cold water, hung them out on the barbed wire to dry, got them back on the bed. Second night comes up, Chad says, I'm not sleeping with Matthew. He's gonna wet the bed again. I said, oh no, we're gonna pray really hard. He won't wet the bed anymore. That was just a one-off. I'm sure it'll never happen again. And uh, so early morning, suddenly I hear a scream. Matthew not only wet the bed, but threw up all over his older brother. And again, Everyone goes off to the meetings. God was really moving in those meetings, that convention, my, I tell ya. But there I was with these stinking sheets and three very unhappy children. And I remember I was so angry. I was just gonna wash those sheets and I was like, I was just angry at my husband for dragging me into it. I was angry at the Kenyan church for making all these demands on us. I was just filled with a lot of anger. And I was just getting ready to sock those sheets down in that cold water again. And then Jesus said, Jewel, are you willing to wash those sheets for me? Are you willing to wash those sheets for me? And I was like, I'm not willing to wash them for my husband. Not willing to wash them for the Kenyan church. But if you put it that way, <laughs> I realized I was washing those sheets for Jesus. I was washing those sheets for Jesus, and that transforms any distasteful task that we can do. If we understand, as Colossians 3.23 says, whatever your task, whatever your task, washing stinky sheets or you fill in the blanks, whatever your task, work heartily as serving the Lord. And not men, not people. When you teach, whatever it is you're doing, you're serving the Lord. <laughs> so I was able to wash those sheets, and I added the hot water of my tears to the cold water of that hand laundry 
But I'll never forget that altar and how, again, I repented of my anger. I repented of my lack of grace that I was showing to the Kenyan church and to my own family. And I said, oh God, I want to be filled with grace to serve because I know really it's you that I'm serving. And maybe you think that after I made such a wonderful surrender to God, things got better. Well, let me tell you, back on that hut that you saw up there, the next place we went was way back in the mountains of that little hut. And that night, our whole family of five was given only one bed to sleep in. Now, it was just a little wider than a twin bed, but it was not as wide as a double. But because God had changed my heart, I was able to make a joke of it. It was like, hey, kids, you get to sleep with mommy and daddy tonight. Guess what? Mommy and daddy are going to be here, and you three kids are going to be at the bottom, and look, you put your feet in between each other, and we're all going to sleep in the same bed tonight, a family bed. The situation had gotten worse, but my heart had expanded, had grown. It was better. So in summary, God gives us grace to serve. If we don't use it, we're going to lose it. There's a lot of reflection and soul searching being done among serious Christians these days about why so many people are stopping going to church, why so many have turned away from Christ. You've probably heard the term ex-evangelical or deconstruction. Parents want formulas. Pastors want formulas. We want guarantees that will help us stand firm. I came across an interesting article that talked about four things. This was a study done of young people who were really going on with the Lord. And they were surveyed. Okay, so what was consistent in your life? What made a difference? Why are you not turning away when so many other people around you are turning away? And there were four things. They said, the survey said, first of all, they had developed a regular pattern of reading and studying the Bible on their own. They were hearing from God. There was a personal relationship. They were hearing and growing and reading the Bible on their own. Secondly, they had developed a prayer life. Like we said in the beginning of this passage, they were clear-minded and self-controlled. They were praying. They had mentors, older people in the faith who walked with them, who encouraged them, checked in with them, cared about them. And fourth, and this has to do with the sermon this morning, they were involved in regular ways of serving others. They weren't just hearing it up in their head and in their heart, but it was going into their hands, and they were serving others. I like that. Grace for service. Committed Christians will tap into that grace and grow as they serve. We're people who are regularly putting into practice what we're hearing. I love my small group. Uh, when our dear beloved elder statesman Al Troyer died not long ago, Kathy called me and asked me what, if I could help with some food. And right away I said, my small group will bring all the food you need. And I knew their hearts for service. I knew I could say that. I didn't even check with them first. I knew they had the grace and the heart to serve, and they did. That's the kind of hearts the Lord wants us to have. At RBC, Rosedale Bible College, where I work, you know, we have classes, but we also have a requirement that each semester, all students need to volunteer for at least 12 hours of service. We give them opportunities. You can tutor 
uh, inner city kids, you can work in a thrift store, you can lead worship in a church, you can host international students, a variety of things you could do, but serve. Don't just be taking in head knowledge in your classes, but having it flow out in service. And kids love it. It really teaches them something they can't learn in the book. In Matthew 25, we have a picture of the second coming of Christ. I've said the end of all things is near. Peter said it at the beginning of our passage. But here in Matthew 25, there is a description of the final judgment. This always gives me the chills when I read it. Then the king says to those on his right, Come, you are blessed by my father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, a terrorist, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick. And you looked after me. I was in prison. And you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Notice it doesn't say anything about words. It doesn't say anything about preaching or leading worship. There's no specific mention of a verbal sharing of the gospel. I'm sure when we visit people in prison, there are verbal words. But the righteous are those who have tapped into God's grace for service to the physical and emotional needs of the least of these. Of course, what we give, what we do, is never enough. And sometimes I think that's why we don't do it. It won't help. It won't help. One of my favorite missionary heroes is a woman by the name of Gladys Aylward. She's called the small woman of China. She went there in 1930 on a one-way ticket. She, um, she didn't have much education. She was a maid. She learned about China by reading the books on the bookshelf of the rich man whose home she dusted and cleaned. But she had such a burning call from God to go to China. It's amazing what she did. If you ever, I don't know if any of you have ever watched the old Hollywood movie called The End of the Sixth Happiness, but her, she became so famous that Hollywood even did a movie on her um, way back then. But she was, the town where she moved, this area of China, as in that day, had this evil practice of binding women's feet. It was supposed to make them beautiful. It kept them from growing and kept them really dainty. She was able to stop that custom a foot binding, but she would go into the villages and as she explained why they shouldn't bind their feet, she would also preach the gospel to them. 
There was a terrible prison riot in the town where she lived. The mayor of the town called her and said, everyone's afraid to go into the prison. They're all killing each other and they'll kill anyone who goes in. She went in and she quelled that riot in the prison. There was a notorious bandit who was robbing caravans that would come down through in the mountains. She sought him out and befriended him. She was an amazing woman. But at the end of her life, this is what she said. She said, I wasn't God's first choice for what I've done in China. I don't know who it was. It, it must have been a man, a well-educated man. I don't know what happened. Perhaps he died. Perhaps he wasn't willing. And God looked down and saw Gladys Aylward. And God said, well, she's willing. It's our availability that God wants more than what we think are our, our abilities. We all think, oh, we could be much better than what we are. Yeah, I'm sure we could. But God doesn't care that much about that. It's, it's like Gladys. Are we available to just give God what it is that we have? who we are. He's not expecting us to be someone we're not. He just wants us to be who we are with all our weaknesses and failures. So as we close here today, I want to think about that little boy with his five loaves and two fish and how it wasn't much. It wasn't sufficient, but he gave it to Jesus. And if you'd like... I'd, I'd suggest that you raise your hands, maybe five fingers and two fingers, symbolic of the five loaves and two fish, and just say, God, I want to give you what it is that I can do. I'd invite you to raise your hands if you feel like you want to make yourself available to God. What are those maybe five texts and two phone calls God wants you to send to people? What are those five shirts and two pair of shoes you could give? What are, who are the five neighbors and two cousins you could invest in? What are the five casseroles and two cakes you could make? Last Sunday, we gave our five shoe boxes and $2. Oh, no, wait, it was 10. <laughs> but, but it's still not enough. It's, it's never enough what we give to feed the multitudes. But God multiplies what we give him beyond what we can think or imagine. And it's the Lord Jesus we are serving. Oh, God. We want to make ourselves here as a congregation available to you this morning. Symbolically, these five loaves and two fishes, these, these seven fingers we're raising to you, God. We want to symbolize that we are available to you just take us as we are and use us to serve your body and to serve the world. Show us, God, each of us, what are those good works which you've prepared ahead of time for us to do. Give us the grace to step back, not just knee-jerk, oh, I could never do that, but to open ourselves to your Holy Spirit. Thank God, oh, I can pray. 
I can go. I can visit. I can pull weeds. Whatever it is, God. We want to serve you. We want to make ourselves available to you so that in all things, you may be praised through Jesus Christ. To you be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen.